I'll invite you now, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn to Psalm 45. As for this afternoon's service, we'll be meditating briefly on this psalm. And uh, compared to what it could be, it is quite brief. Uh, because as I was going over this again recently, uh, thinking on uh, <clears throat> just this brief meditation for today, I was realizing, boy, if I were to exposit this carefully, it'd probably be about three sermons worth that you would get out of Psalm 45, because there's so much detail that we can connect with other scriptures. But uh, just as we briefly meditate on Psalm 45 this afternoon, we note, first of all, that the caption of the psalm reads, To the choir master, according to the lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. So that gives us a bit of information about this psalm. It's uh, to the choir master, much as we've seen before, uh, indicates it was written with public worship in mind. So we've noted many times before, uh, of course, all of the psalms in the Psalter, in 150 psalms of the Bible, uh, they uh, were intended by God for worship. They were brought together under his inspiration for public worship. Uh, But uh, sometimes... The author had something else in mind when he was writing it, and it was brought by God into the Psalter. And other times, the author was thinking from the get-go, this will be for public worship. And uh, so we usually have some kinds of instructions to the choir master uh, in the caption that will tell us that. This was written with public worship in mind. We also see the, the instruction here to the choir master, according to the lilies. Uh, that's probably telling the choir master what tune use. And the term amaskil is a term that uh, possibly means something like a contemplation, something on which we should reflect deeply. And of the sons of Korah indicates it was written by the Levites who sang in the temple regularly. And then we have this uh, rare statement here that it is a love song. Literally a song of loves. So there's a a multiplicity to the love here. And it's really, you'll notice, a love for the king and the king's love for his bride that we sing of in Psalm 45. Uh, It's noteworthy to note the word for song there is translated into the Greek, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, as the word ode, from which we get our word ode. If you've ever thought of... uh, like Robert Burns' poem, Ode to a Louse, or something like that. Uh, it's a, it's a, a song. Uh, it's usually translated as song. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 for a, a spiritual song. Um, so that demonstrates that you know, he was talking about the biblical psalms when he said that, not just any song about spiritual things. But this is, we're told, a love song, a song of loves. It really, it's a song about marriage, as some of us were noting. This is commonly sung at, uh, at weddings in the RP church. It was sung at my wedding. Uh, but this song is not just about any wedding. The reason we sing it often at weddings, in fact, is because Christian marriage is supposed to reflect the relationship of Christ to the church and the church to Christ. Because this is not just any wedding that we're singing about here, but the wedding of a king. And not just any king, but a king who is also God, as we see in this psalm. So this psalm is really about Jesus Christ. 
and what Revelation 19.9 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, in which we know the bride is the church, and Christ has come to claim his bride. There are seven basic sections as I see them to this psalm. Verse 1 is an introduction. Verse 2 through 5 are about the victory of Christ the King. Verses 6 through 9 are about the exaltation of Christ the King. Verses 10 through 12 are a call to the bride of Christ. Verses 13 through 15 are about the wedding, the marriage of Christ. And verses 16 and 17 sing the final glory of Christ and his bride. So let's uh, jump into them. The introduction is verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. The psalmist's heart is bursting, so to speak, to sing the praises of this king that he's thinking of, such that his tongue is like the pen of a skillful writer. It will produce beauty. (coughs) In verses 2 through 5, of course I could go on and on about that, but we'll move on here as we're just briefly meditating. Verses 2 through 5, the psalmist here sings of the victory of Christ, starting by extolling his beauty. This is something that we don't often think about. Think about how Christ is beautiful. And we're not just thinking about the physical beauty, but the beauty that comes from his grace and his words. We see here in verse 2, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. So notice a couple of things from that verse. Number one, the king is truly human. He is one of the sons of men, literally sons of Adam. And So had Christ not really shared our nature, truly shared our nature, he could not have been our substitute. But we'll see later in the psalm that he also is God. But the second thing we see in that verse is the fact that he is handsome is paralleled with the grace poured on his lips. In other words, his beauty is not so much from his physical appearance as it is from his faithfulness to speak God's word. What a beautiful thing to speak God's word faithfully. God has blessed him forever, we're told, about which we'll hear more in the next section. But first we see his victory over his enemies in verses 3 through 5 here. Gird on your sword, or gird your sword on your thigh, rather, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Christ, by his sovereign power, advances his kingdom and is victorious as the gospel of truth and meekness and righteousness goes forth. Well, next in verse 6 through verse 9, we sing of Christ's exaltation. Notice that he is not only king in these verses, but he's also God. So we've seen already that he's a king who is subduing his enemies, as our confession, our shorter catechism says, that he's subduing to himself all of his and our enemies, which is a 
an excellent comfort for all of Christ's people. But we see here he's also God. Your throne, verse 6, your throne, O God. So think about this. We're talking about a king and his throne. And now all of a sudden God is saying to this king that he is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. So he has an everlasting rule in uprightness, in righteousness. He has served God faithfully, so, so he is God, but he also took the form of a servant, as Philippians 2 tells us. And he served God faithfully, and now is being rewarded for that. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Think about how Christ in his earthly ministry did all of these things. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. So we've got somebody who is God, but he is anointed by God, his God. So we're talking about somebody who is both God and man at the same time. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. So they were beginning to talk about his bride and how he has adorned that bride. But here first we see Christ having served God faithfully and sinlessly has received the name which is above every other name. And he's glorified in royal splendor with his bride, the church, alongside of him. And he's in an ivory palace. He's received treasures and glory. Notice that while he is God in verse 6 again, he also has God as his God in verse 7. And so this again speaks of his humanity. His true humanity also alongside his divine nature. Two distinct natures in one person. He's both God and man, and as man, perfectly serves God. Well, the next section, verses 10 through 12, are a call then to his bride. We were introduced to there, the queen standing adorned in gold by his side. And so there's this call now for that bride to leave the world behind and be joined to Christ. This is the call of every Christian and of all of us collectively. The result will be great exaltation for the bride as well. So, Just as Christ has been exalted, so will his bride be exalted. So verses 10 through 12, Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. So we see there are Gentiles coming to seek to be joined to the bride as well. We see this bride uh, being called to forget the world, to forget the connections that are outside of Christ, and be connected to Christ, be joined to Him. Next, in verses 13 through 15, we sing of the marriage of Christ. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. So think of the bride being adorned, getting ready for the wedding ceremony here, as it were. Verse 14, in many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. How glorious will be that day when Christ claims his exalted bride. 
when he has washed her and cleansed her and robed her in white and in gold for his wedding, whom he's made fit for his heavenly presence. This is speaking here, of course, of the full sanctification and glorification of the church. And then lastly, in verses 16 and 17, we see that Christ will reign in glory with the church, his bride, forever. So it's not a a temporary marriage as earthly marriage is, that uh, if it lasts as long as it's supposed to, it lasts as long as the husband and wife both shall live. Here we see that in this case, the bride and the groom will live forever, and their marriage, therefore, will be forever. And the people the people of Christ here are being pictured as sons of the bride, uh, living and reigning with Christ the King in perpetuity. So verses 16 and 17, In place of your fathers shall be your sons. So this is speaking to the bride. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. So then again we get uh, a clue there to the fact that God is going to be calling people into his bride from out of every tongue and tribe and nation because we see the nations which Christ has claimed and over whom he has authority will praise the bride of Christ forever and ever. Well, we can do that now. We can praise Christ and his bride sing the exaltation of Christ and his bride as we sing this last portion of Psalm 45. Let's turn our Psalters to 45C as in Christ and stand together as we're able and we'll sing to the glory of God. 45C. Mm-hmm.